This is David Ocker, author of Owning Game-Changing Subcategories, Uncommon Growth in the Digital Age. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help us both keep up with the latest ideas in the quickly changing fields of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction and save you some time. This show is a labor of love that I do in my spare time. My day job is running a marketing agency where we work with manufacturers and industrial companies to arm their sales teams to take back control of their company's growth. We're not a fit for every company, but if that sounds like you, check out salesartillery.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome back Dr. David Ocker to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his newest book, Owning Game-Changing Subcategories, Uncommon Growth in the Digital Age, published by Morgan James. David Ocker is the Vice Chairman of Profit, a global consultancy around brand, customer experience, and digital transformation, and Professor Emeritus of Marketing Strategy at the University of California, Berkeley's Haas School of Business. He has published more than 100 articles and 17 books that have sold well over 1 million copies and have been translated into 18 languages. His books include... Managing Brand Equity, Building Strong Brands, Brand Leadership, Brand Portfolio Strategy, Strategic Market Management, Brand Relevance, Making Competitors Irrelevant, Ocker on Branding, and Creating Signature Stories, which I interviewed him about a couple years ago. A recognized authority on brand strategy, he has been an active consultant and speaker throughout the world. And interesting fact, he is originally from Fargo, North Dakota. Professor Ocker, congratulations on owning game-changing subcategories, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks for having me. So I was very excited when, you, uh, when I found out about your book and you uh, agreed to come on. And I should add, for those people that follow Marketing Book Podcast trivia very closely, while you were an undergraduate at MIT, you later earned master's and your doctorate at Stanford University. Is that correct? That's correct. So there have been more books by authors with Stanford degrees than any other school. And so there's something going on at Stanford over the years where they must agree to write a marketing or sales book uh, when they graduate. But it's really remarkable. And by Marketing Book Podcast Law, anyone with a Stanford degree who has written a marketing or sales book, I am required to interview. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm happy, to, happy to interview them. And I should mention that I first learned about you when I was working in New York at J. Walter Thompson, the, the storied ad agency, and I was working on the Listerine account. And my client, Gary Paladin, who is 
He's now a consumer health products executive in San Francisco. On his desk was a copy of Managing Brand Equity. So this must have been the early 90s. Would that, would that be about right? Yeah, that would be. And so I learned about you then and then have seen your books uh, ever since then. So I guess you could say in, in my consciousness, you go way back. But I also was pleased to see that Dr. Philip Kotler, a professor at Northwestern University's Kellogg uh, Graduate School of Business, he endorsed your book, and he's also uh, frequently referred to as the father of modern marketing. And he said, David Ocker uses economics and case studies to show how growth comes from inspired breakthroughs that create new subcategories and not from expanding market programs. Use the 20 takeaways to find your own subcategory breakthrough. And those 20 takeaways at the very end were very helpful. I wish I'd read them as I was beginning the book, but they're really very, very helpful. I think any of your books people get so much from, but this one brought to mind a scenario that I think a lot of marketers and salespeople encounter. And that is they're in a meeting, in a conference room with the boss or whoever's in charge, and the boss might be slamming their fists on the conference room table saying, go make more cold calls or, or turn to the marketing people and say, get our name out there. You know, they, they want more revenue. They want more growth. And it's the sort of thing I thought about when I read Tiffany Bova's book, Growth IQ, and she was interviewed on the podcast, where sales and marketing people can look at this and they can hear what's going on, but they might, if they read a book like yours, they're able to then perhaps guide their companies to understand that it's more than just doing those uh, a handful of tactics. It's, there's, there's strategy involved, and it can be enormously profitable by uh, following uh, some strategy. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I, the, one of the reasons I, I wrote the book, not the only one, but one reason was that I observed that every time you have a sales spurt somewhere, that it's there's usually because somebody has formed a whole new subcategory with a new or improved uh, customer experience or brand relationship. And uh, it, it, my first uh, uh, insight came from I had uh, three decades of Japanese beer data because I I used to do a lot of work in Japan, and um, and Asahi Super Dry was uh, was a, the most biggest success in those thirty years, and they created a new subcategory because of a different taste and because of their cool young uh, image that that or persona that they generated. And then I looked at computers, I looked at automobiles, I looked at category after category and found the same kind of thing. And so I really figured out that growth is uh, is not generated by my brand is better than your brand competition. In that Japanese beer data, it was vigorous brand competition. I mean, they had three or four new products a year came out. They had enormous promotions and so on. And the market structure, the, the market share structure didn't change at all. So my brand is better than your brand marketing just almost never generates growth. So if you want growth, I concluded, and everybody should want growth because it generates vitality externally and internally, you really need to look toward what I call substantial or transformational innovation. And that incremental innovation and the conventional my brand's better and your brand marketing will not do it. Yes. And you have done paid work for beer companies. 
I have done extensive unpaid product testing products by some of those beer companies that you mentioned. So just wanted to mention that, you know, I've I'm a volunteer, and if they ever want me to test any of their beer, uh, I, I hope they'll get in touch with me. So I wanted to read uh, just a couple of quick excerpts from the beginning of the book. You write, Growth is a success measure for most organizations, showing that its value proposition is working. It can intrigue and reassure customers as well as bring pride and opportunity to employees. It is or should be a strategic priority. How do you grow in the digital age? One central thesis of this book is that the only way to grow your business, with rare exceptions, in any age is to find and own game-changing subcategories. That path to growth has almost always been behind any observed surge in sales or business valuation, which you mentioned. And then you go on to say, a second book thesis is that the potential for achieving growth through creating game-changing subcategories has been dramatically changed and enhanced by the digital revolution. Digital has created a very different innovation world in which the subcategory growth path has been made wider, shorter, and more frequently traveled. And finally, it says, the alternative to engaging in marketing leadership by creating new game-changing subcategories is, as you said, my brand is better than your brand, brand preference competition. That route rarely generates growth and is so not fun. <laughs> the book uses case studies and conceptual insights to, to illustrate how game-changing subcategories create growth, how digital both drives and enables new subcategories to win, and how to find, evaluate, manage, and build barriers around these game-changing must-haves. It features the role of digital and subcategory dynamics in achieving uncommon growth. So, Dr. Acker, I have to admit that I wasn't quite clear what a game-changing subcategory was, so there may be a few listeners who need a refresher. Explain what a game-changing subcategory is. Well, it's a set of offerings or an offering that that really enhances or changes or creates a whole new customer experience and or uh, a new type of brand relationship. So, you know, uh, a Tesla is certainly in that category. And, and a lot of what Tesla has done is based on digital, actually, because the, the, the digital capabilities they have have really changed the customer experience. But they've also created a, a new brand relationship because people like to be associated with, with saving um, energy to help save the planet. They also like to be associated with the aura of success and newness and innovativeness that is Tesla. So um, that's a new subcategory. And of course, it's a subcategory within the larger category of automobiles. And they have uh, created a subcategory in the premium auto automobile segment uh, as well. So there's a different kind of uh, several subcategories in which they play. The concept of a very high-end, you know, digitally enhanced and technologically superior premium automobile, high-performance premium automobile, is a subcategory that's really owned by Tesla. And if you want, and Tesla has managed that ca category and continues to own it. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and others are now trying to become relevant, but it's a uphill struggle for them. 
because Tesla has created a huge cadre of customers and they've got ongoing innovation. They're kind of a moving target. And so it becomes hard for competitors to enter that. Anyway, if you look at any category, you'll see examples of people or companies that have done that. You know, look at yogurt. There's a Chobani. And uh, you look at uh, the hospitality industry. There is uh, Airbnb and so on. So there's plenty of examples of companies that have done that. So several times in the book, the phrase must have is, is strung throughout the book. And at one point, actually, in the, the 20 takeaways, uh, it says a game-changing subcategory is defined by a set of must-haves. So explain this concept of must-haves. Yeah, well, first of all, um, a must-have is not a nice-to-have. It's a uh, some quality of the new offering that will stimulate loyalty. It'll stimulate customers to actively avoid options that don't have this, quote, must-have. And it, it's almost always the case that a new subcategory is formed by a set of them, you know, like six, seven, eight of them. Again, look at Tesla. There's the, the digital display. There's the, the range. There's the performance. There's the styling. And there's the, uh, you know, uh, the comfort, you know, little innovations inside. And, and there's the, the uh, social benefits of, of helping the planet. So there's, uh, there, usually, there just has to be a lot of them, usually. One doesn't carry the day. And, and secondly, there's almost always some of these must-haves that, that go beyond functional benefits, that they have a, a social benefit or a, uh, an emotional benefit or a self-expressive benefit as well as functional benefits. And they, they also, it's the case that these must-haves evolve over time. You look at Airbnb that was established in 2007 by two guys that wanted to make their rent in their three-bedroom apartment, and they rented out three air mattresses to do so. And when they did that, they had no concept that, you know, 12 years later, they would have a tens of billions of dollars worth of a business that, that had a guy named Chip Conley, who was a hospitality guru that joined the firm and generate a whole bunch of services for the hosts. They didn't know that was going to happen. So it evolved over time. Over time, they developed must, some must-haves. They refined them over the time. They improved on them. And that's really the, the mark of most subcategories. So you have multiple must-haves. They evolve through the time, and they extend almost always beyond functional benefits. So what would be an example of must-haves for Airbnb? Well, there's a set of them for the hosts and a set of them for the guests. So if you look on the host side, for example, it starts with their label, which is kind of a an attitude or a persona. They're entrepreneurial hosts. So they're not owner managers that are trying to make extra money. They're entrepreneurial hosts. So they're hosts because they want to create an extremely positive guest experience, and they're entrepreneurial because they'll innovate and use creativity to do that. Uh, another is the host support that comes from Airbnb. A lot of things that this Chip Conley developed six years after they started 
It's uh, things like uh, helping them make a better presentation. They have annual host conferences. They have an online community. They have a mentoring program and, and much more. A third thing is they have Airbnb experiences. That wasn't started to 2017, 10 years after the founding. And there they, the host can leverage his passion and, and knowledge to create experiences that like a hiking experience or a visit to a museum with a comedian or something that, that no other hotel or something would ever offer. And another one is the reviews of guests and hosts. So if a host you know, improves over the years, these host reviews will allow him to get the word out. And the guest reviews will allow him to avoid some bad guest experiences if he's concerned about that. So again, there's you see at Airbnb, multiple must-haves. You see they've all evolved over time, and a lot of them go way beyond functional benefits. The idea of an entrepreneurial host, again, is kind of an attitude or a personality, and Airbnb experiences have a lot of emotional benefits behind them. Mm-hmm. So you talk about uh, exemplar brands, which is a term used a lot in the book. C- can you uh, Related to that, can you explain why promoting the category or the subcategory is actually more important than promoting your brand. Yeah, well, first of all, one of the reasons I wrote the book is that there's a ton of very good books on innovation slash growth slash uh, strategy out there. It's just no shortage of such books. But if you look in those books, and I've done this, you look at the index and the word branding is not mentioned. It's nothing about branding. They talk about you have to have differentiated products. You have to use transformational innovation. You have to create new categories. They never talk about subcategories either. It's You have to be a new category like Circus Soleil. And nothing about branding. And it struck me that the key to really growth is going to be branding. And you better understand branding and how to do it. So I, in my this uh, model of growth... I, uh, I advocated that the person that's trying to develop a subcategory needs to become the exemplar brand. And the exemplar brand is the brand that represents the subcategory. Tesla represents the, the Tesla subcategory. And so does Airbnb. And there's three roles of the exemplar brand that are just critical. One, they have to, as you mentioned, they have to manage the whole subcategory. They have, to posi- they have to make it visible, but more than that, they have to position it. And what that means, they have to make sure that when people think of the subcategory, they know and think about the must-haves because that's going to you know, uh, create a buzz in the marketplace and it's going to create a barrier to uh, competitors. The second job of an exemplar is to scale. It's, you know, you, there's a pricing concept that's called skimming, where you sort of pay as you go and you get all the profits from the people that are really keen about your thing. And, and you can't do that in, uh, by growing subcategories in the digital age. You've got to scale. You've got to grow as fast as you can. You've got to forego profits. You've got to accept losses, like Uber has done in, in, in pricing their services, like Amazon has done is building infrastructure and sacrificing profits and 
and raising money to do that. So you have to scale. So important. Creates buzz, creates a an established customer base that is going to be very hard for competitors to compete against. And one way to scale is to use social media. And I talk about Dollar Shave Club that introduced a, a, a minute and a half video that went viral. It cost them 4500 to make. And they got 12,000 subscriptions in two days. And that established the company. Today, that video has gotten 26.5 million views. But uh, social media is, is really crucial to scaling, and scaling is crucial to subcategories. The third job is you have to build barriers. And the exemplar brand has to build barriers. Otherwise, it was all for nothing. And you, you, the strength of the must-haves in the positioning task is one barrier. The base of loyal customers is another but you also can have branded innovation, like Uniqlo is branded its fabric innovations, heat tech and airism. And you can have continuous innovation being a moving target, like Prius has done, with every two years they have a set of new innovations, which makes it really hard to uh, become relevant in the subcategory that Prius established. Yes, and when you talked about the skimming, it brought to mind another thing from your book where – you talk several times about the importance of a committed core customer base. In fact, you write that if the effort is to simply create sales rather than to build a committed customer base, growth will be difficult. Why is that? Well, it's because um, the committed customer base, especially in the digital age, will feed on itself because of this magical button called sharing. And so these people will tell others about it, which was always been important. Back in the 50s, people, a, guy, a sociologist named Katz and Lazarfield wrote a book called Personal Influence, and they told and how important that was because it's so powerful. And they were talking about people that had a potential audience of three or 13 or 25 at the most. But now you've got people that have a total, an audience of 100,000 or a million. So social is really important. So if you have a core base, that's a potential avenue to, uh, to implement uh, social. And again, if you have a core base, you've attracted the people that are, have the highest affinity to your new idea. So competitors are left with either converting those people, which is really hard, or going after the customers that have less affinity. So they're going to be worth less and more expensive to attract. So uh, it becomes a huge barrier to entry. Well, just let me, if I digress, Doug, when I wrote my first branding book, Managing Brand Equity, I defined brand equity. And in those days, brand equity was defined as brand awareness and image. And uh, my friend, Dave, uh, Kevin Keller, that's how he defined it. And that's how most advertising agencies defined it. And I included in the definition of brand equity the loyalty of the customer base because it just struck me that if you were buying a brand or selling a brand, that's the key asset. So I've all long thought that branding is all about building a customer base and taking care of that base. So David, let's talk about money. What is the potential payoff for uh, developing and you know defining a new game-changing subcategory? I mean, share with us what evidence there is of a tangible payoff here. This isn't something that can be derisively dismissed as some, you know, arts and crafts marketing exercise. No, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really hard 
to answer that question definitively, what we can say is there is a host of role models that have generated really amazing results, like Dollar Shave Club was sold for a billion dollars four years after it started. Uh, Airbnb is worth $35 billion now, some 12 years after it started. So there's plenty of anecdotal things like that. We know, for example, that Chrysler, one of my favorite examples, generated a minivan in 1983, and for 15 years they had no competition and sold 12.5 million cars. And nobody's put a number of value on what that's worth, but it saved the company and it was worth a lot. Mm. So there's a lot of anecdotes like that. And then we have anecdotes about just plain exposure when Dollar Sales Club get 12,000 new subscribers. So that's a metric that you know has got some value and you could probably price it out. And then we have, in, in terms of science, probably the most robust empirical finding in all of, of marketing, indeed business research, is that the success of a new product goes up as, as does its difference. So if a new product is newer, it will be more successful. If a new product is not new, it will usually fail. And that's been found in literally 100 studies. And so that leads credence to the basic premise that this is going to pay off. There was something in the book that I thought was really helpful, not just for this, but for other aspects of creating a better customer experience and, and, and word-of-mouth marketing. But you've written that major innovations can come from addressing visible irritations with the customer experience. That concept alone seems to have generated a number of these game-changing subcategories. Can you give some, some more examples of addressing irritations that customers are having? Well, there's a chapter in the book on how you find must-haves. And it turns out there's really two basic avenues. One is that you can look at offering-driven ideas. So, you know, like the Apple approach where you let the technology come together and, okay, here's a product and we think it'll work. So a lot of the Apple products come into that area. Sometimes it's, it's uh, stimulated by failed ideas that can be fixed. And in fact, almost, I mean, a staggering percentage of these new subcategories are formed by exemplar brands that weren't the first brand. You know, Prius wasn't the first compact hybrid that was Honda. And almost all of Apple products were preceded by other products. And so... Um, you have to be the first one to get it right, not the first one. And the second source is customer-driven ideas that comes from things like customer frustrations. You know, what is not what's bothering them now in the marketplace in their experience, like the hassle of having to pay a lot of money and go get the replacement blades for your razor handle. Yes, yeah. There's a a wonderful follow-on video that Dollar Shave Club did. And I'd like you to to go to Dollar Shave Club on YouTube and and listen to a couple of those ads. But one talks about how uh, you wanted to buy a razor and goes to a store and said, can you give me a key to uh, get into the locked area where they have uh, razor blades? And then he's treated as a as a criminal and ultimately tasered. And uh, <laughs> I haven't seen that. Yeah, the CEO uh, walks out and says, um, 
we actually want to sell you blades. And then you can bypass this, you know, unpleasant experience in the drugstore and, and you can just order Dollar Shave by uh, be, a, be a subscriber and get it regularly. So uh, that's one. But there's a lot of others, too. The customer can have some things he's not really aware of. You know, uh, he's using it for a different purpose or he has some problem and he, he doesn't even know it's a problem because – you know, there's no other option. I mean, people that drove horse and buggies didn't know that they had a issue of speed or distance. And there's things like getting the core motivation right by looking around. But there's other assets too. One is the, the you know, the desirability of a brand community or a higher purpose. And both of those are are things that I think are really powerful ways to develop a subcategory that's uh, available to virtually everybody, B&B companies, non-for-profit companies, and and so on. There's a lot of that in the book. And of course, it's one of several things that is even more applicable now in the, the digital age. I want to go to chapter six about harnessing digital communication and read an excerpt. You write, there is, of course, no free lunch. Employing digital communication is not simply creating a description of your brilliant idea and exposing it on a website and on social media. It is not just checking a box. Sometimes there are offerings that are so new, so intriguing, so relevant, that with some luck, they just pop by themselves. When such an opportunity arises, the challenge is to leverage the news value by activating as many digital vehicles as possible and hope that it catches fire. But that despite hopes and dreams, very rarely happens. It turns out too often people are not interested in your subcategory or your exemplar brand, even though you're sure you've found a huge newsworthy advance. They are not interested in descriptions of our facts about your must-haves. Further, there's enormous media clutter, information overload, and an in-control audience. The coping strategy of most people when they hear about a new product or service idea is to simply ignore it. Even if the communication manages to get through the attention barrier, the audience will be skeptical of any effort to sell them on a new product, service, or brand. They will resist and even counter-argue, bringing up doubts about your facts, assumptions, and logic. So David Ocker, what's a company to do? What can they do? Well, as you know, I wrote a whole book on that called Creating Signature Stories. To me, uh it's all about content, and content involves stories because they do attract attention. They do get remembered. They do sort of inhibit counter-arguing. And I, so I've worked with organizations to get them to use stories, especially not-for-profits. And, and it's a real struggle because even if they accept the idea that facts and program descriptions will not be effective because they will be ignored or greeted with skepticism, they have a hard time doing that because they don't have the staff that's good at finding and presenting stories. And if even if they do, like B2B companies often have stories. My company, Profit, has 70 case studies, but they tend to be shallow and they tend not to have a wow factor. And, and David, let's step back for one second, though. And let me ask let me do something I'm very good at, which is asking really stupid questions. Somebody who's listening may think storytelling, oh, that's about lying or making things up. Can you explain the concept of storytelling? Yes, we're talking about stories, uh, the once upon a time stories that, that are so absorbing that people just get into the story. 
And if they ever think you're selling them something, or if they ever think this is phony, it's not going to work. It doesn't even have to be true, but it, it can't engender those kinds of thoughts. And so you you have just get taken my favorite example, Life Boy Soap. It's a bar soap. And in India, they developed a Help a Child Reach 5 program because 5 million kids die before the age of, of 5 each year, mostly f- from water, and that could be alleviated by washing your hands better. In this program, they had three videos that how, explained how the program was introduced in three villages that got 42 million views. 42 million views. I mean, you just think about getting that kind of exposure by talking about bar soap. And these stories were emotional. You you can't listen to those videos without crying and seeing this mother of this child who lost him. And you're celebrating the fifth anniversary and that child's not there. I mean, it's it's just so powerful. And so a story has to be so entertaining, so emotional, or so involving, or so intriguing that has a what I call a wow factor. It's almost, you have to share this with somebody. They'll just really be glad to be exposed to it. Right. So an example of a story, tell me if I'm right or wrong here. Instead of having, here's our product, it's a widget, and it's great. Instead, a company could say, uh, this is Alice, and she uh, was worried about downtime on her production line. She looked at these and several others. She tested them, and now her factory is uh, has very little downtime, and she's been promoted. It's the same product, but presented in a way that, as I understand it, the human brain wants to process a story more than it does facts and figures. Yes. Well, that as you presented it, that didn't seem like a very intriguing story. But if you uh, if you buttress it up by telling about Sally and her background, and then you told uh, how this changed her professional life or something, then it might become a memorable story. Right. But the fact is, I somebody who would present it in a story like that is much more compelling than just featuring. The product, in other words, if you could make the customer the hero uh, of the of the story, uh, that does much more than making the product the hero. Yes, that does. But it gives you a chance, but it's you're only halfway there because you've got to make the story really compelling, evolving, emotional, humorous, or something that people will really get into it and really want to share it. So, to get the rest of the way there, you have to make either find another story or make this story sufficiently uh, powerful that it does have the wow factor. Yes. Well, to be clear, I don't claim to be a great storyteller, nor was I trying to tell a great story. I was trying to differentiate story format from products and features. Well, it's really gratifying when somebody gets that point, and it's certainly true. But again, what I found is that point is not enough. You've got to go the rest of the way. Well, let's let them walk before they run. Uh, at least get them to start to understand the power. As a matter of fact, your book, Signature, Creating Signature Stories, I find myself recommending that to so many listeners because I, I hear from listeners around the world. They message me on LinkedIn and they, they say, hey, I, I, I'm trying to get a handle on stories and storytelling, or they're trying to explain the concept to their businesses. And I'm delighted to be able to send a link to that interview and get them to read it. And both of these books are uh, not long books. So 
There's another, as it relates to finding these must-haves, uh, sort of back to the Henry Ford idea of if he asked his customers what they wanted, they would have said, what, a faster horse that doesn't eat as much, something like that, yeah, right, exactly. because of their frame of reference. And it's so important. You write that customers are not always a good source for understanding some kinds of unmet needs, especially those involving emotional and self-expressive benefits, like you mentioned earlier. Can you explain what ethnographic research is and how that can help? Well, yes, that's been around a long time, but it's uh, basically living with a customer and really understanding what kinds of frustrations and inefficiencies sort of exist in that customer experience. You basically go and live with a customer for days upon days. And now these days with digital, you can do that digitally. You can activate a camera when they're doing the wash or something so you don't have to actually live in the household for a whole week just to, to uh, experience two uh, wash clothes episodes. And then you uh, dig into that and you see if you can find some areas that are less satisfying than others for the customer and then you probe the customer as to why and so forth. So uh, it's... Uh, you know, it, it is a bit of an inefficient, time-consuming technique, but sometimes some real uh, insight can come out of it. Depth interviewing is, oh, and focus groups have always, to some extent, tried to do something similar. Uh, absence is actually being with a customer. It's hard to sometimes get at the core. Right, and it brings to mind the importance of observing them empathetically, and also not saying, what do you want? Or waiting yes. for some customer to ask for something, let's say from your sales team. It's it's going in and observing them. And it's uh, some of the other things that, that came up about finding these must-haves, like we talked about, customer frustration and annoyances. And also trying to find out what their core motivation is, what their real true motivation is as it may be related to your product. And, and like you said, you know, unintended applications. I think you gave the example of uh, Arm & Hammer baking soda. They didn't realize until they were observing their customers that some people were using that in their refrigerators to cut down on uh, some of the odors. And the other thing that I found so interesting is to go to your non-customers. There's a, a, a goldmine of information about why they're not buying from you. seems like that can lo unlock a lot of opportunities. Yeah, of course. Christensen at, at, from Harvard, who did the uh, famous book on innovation, he talked about the uh, the low end, the customers that can't afford what you're doing, the customers that don't need all the fancy stuff. And he talks about the risk of allowing competitors to enter the you know through that doorway, and suddenly they upgrade and upgrade, and all of a sudden you've lost them. They are. You, you've got Xerox no longer the leader at Kingdom of the Hill. So, yeah, you ask, why aren't some customers buying? Such a great question. So, talk to us about your thoughts on using humor for a subcategory. Well, what I talked about in my storybook was the need to get people to avoid counter-arguing. So, to do that, you need to distract them some way. And uh, one way to distract is to you know have an involving story where they just get into the story, like this woman in India that, that lost her son before five to waterborne illness. But another is to use humor. That's what humor does. 
an example is back in the day when they had the oil crisis and those big gas lines and people, you know, they just hated the oil companies and they thought they were making 35% profit. So they'd run ads and said, no, actually we only make 3% profit and did not work at all. Made them people angrier. And then Chevron did these cute cartoon dinosaur ads, you know, blub, blub, blub. We, we, we know more dinosaurs and so on. We better save energy. And that moved the needle because you watch these cartoons and this, all this hatred and counter arguing just didn't come up. And how do you argue with a cartoon, cartoon dinosaur? You got me. So yeah, humor can be can be really be a powerful powerful device. Well, I was greatly encouraged when I saw that, and I understand why a lot of companies are reluctant to do it. But you gave several examples of companies that have been very successful creating a subcategory with humor. Well, Dollar Shave Club is that category. In that case, it was more than just humor; it was a part of their effort to have this feisty underdog, irrelevant, irreverent. Excuse me. Face the element, irreverent competitor that's coming in against these clumsy, huge giants like Gillette. And, mm-hmm. and then humor was part of that persona. It was just a, I mean, they had permission because of that persona to be engaged in outrageous humor. <laughs> and so these uh, videos that they got, including the first one that got them off the ground, is it's just really funny. Yes, and the basics of storytelling, one of the great things about the, one of the many things that was very effective about Dollar Shave Club is they turned the other razor companies into villains, which is a very important element in uh, storytelling. So the last thing I want to ask you about is creating barriers. You write that the goal of creating a new game-changing subcategory is to have a phase in which competition is non-existent or greatly reduced, leading to an attractive profit stream that is above normal levels. That momentum leads to a significant and sustainable market position. The problem is that successful new subcategories will attract competitors looking for growth. The challenge is to build barriers. And you go on to explain that you know, there are some, you know, there's many different types of barriers. One is you know, proprietary technology or maybe the size of the investment, which I think was one of the issues for the uh, Japanese beer companies that you worked with. But you also talk about customer-facing barriers. And you mentioned, or we talked about one, which was having a committed customer base. You know, you just, all of these to me brought to mind building a bigger and bigger moat around what you have. Having a committed customer base is very important for creating a barrier. What are some of the other barriers that, that companies should be doing to protect themselves? Yeah, it's the, it coming back to the exemplar brand's job and having really strong associations with these must-have is one that comes out of their positioning job. And then the size of the customer base is, is the other is another because that makes it really less attractive for competitors to try to buy their way in if the best customers are already taken. But then there's a branded innovation, and I gave the example of unique clothes, branded fabric innovations, heat tech is a brand, airism is a brand. And so all their competitors like REI and so on have, have tried to get competing fabric innovations. But now that the brand heat tech and airism is so established, you know, customers are looking for fabrics with those brands on them. And then you have the concept of just continually innovate. And I gave, uh, Prius is, is an example where every two years they have a four, five, six new innovations. 
and uh, and that really makes it hard for somebody else to become relevant to the subcategory that Prius has, has created because uh, they have all the innovations they might have matched from that are now two years old, but they don't have the current ones. And the current ones provide more barriers. They also provide energy. And they also provide reassurance between one of them must have, and that is that they're an innovative offering. And they always have the highest quality or the highest degree of innovative features and benefits. Mm-hmm. Another one is uh, execution, which is... Uh do what you say you're going to do. In other words, if you're if these must-haves are something that have to do with the delivery of your product or service, make sure you're doing it. Yeah, that's one of the keys to Amazon. I mean, Amazon is is just so incredible, amazing in terms of their reliability. They're able to deliver service, and so it's it's pretty hard to try something else. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just playing excellence and execution can be a barrier. Yes, and another interesting one is trust. And you wrote that trust is not only crucial, but it is harder to maintain than in the past. Why do you say that? Well, you know, my, a good example of that is uh, is when Asahi Super Dry came in with their different taste and persona. Karen Dry it duplicated the taste, but they failed because they just didn't have. They weren't authentic, and they didn't have the trust. But yeah, I, trust is tough because all the institutions of, that you're connected with, whether it's government, business, anything, the, the trust is eroded all over the place. And so people are just less willing to uh, give people the benefit of the doubt. They're more critical. They're more demanding. And that then applies to, to brands as well and to offerings. And so it's uh, definitely a battle. Now, here again, I give the example of Barclays, who was once the least trusted brand in the least trusted industry, and they turned it around with some kind of higher-purpose programs that they packaged and they told stories around, and, and that really helped them recover. So, David, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Well, the first is that my brand is better than your brand doesn't generate growth. You've got to create new subcategories that change the customer experience or the brand relationship. That's probably number one. But the fact that you need to use an exemplar brand, that branding is part of this growth thing, this part of this innovation thing. I think that's really important. And that is something that just doesn't appear elsewhere. And really, a third thing is that digital has put this subcategory growth idea on steroids. And now you have digital that has the Internet of Things giving you a lot more options as e-commerce and social media that give you access to the market. And it has brand communities, uh, which might be the subject of my next book. I think that's such a powerful vehicle to create a subcategory. Oh, please do write that book. I actually have a book here. Uh, there's stacks of them now that uh, about how to build a community. And I have not had a book on the show about that. And I was made a note to uh, reach out to that author to uh, invite him on. And if you do write that book, I know a guy who has a podcast where he interviews authors of new marketing and sales books. I think I can connect you with him. Oh, good. Thanks, Doug. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's what I do for my, uh, for my guests. So is there one thing a listener could do today to put in action any of the ideas from your book? 
Well, I think that one thing is to change the innovation mix and have a little bit less emphasis on incremental information and take a chance on substantial or transformational innovation. I think that there's, you know, a big company especially gets way too uh, tied to just making incremental improvements in what they have. And I think another thing to do is to be sensitive to the environment, to be close to the customer, to be close to innovation, so that, you know, almost all these things are just a matter of timing. And that's the genius of Apple, to recognize when the timing is right. And you can't do that unless you're you're linked to the innovation and or you're linked to the, uh, to the technology of the day and you're also really intimate with a customer. Absolutely. And it seems to me like too many companies are more focused on the technology than the customer. If they learn how to listen to their customers and observe them, they're going to be told or they're going to be given the clues that they need. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Well, I have to um, qualify this that, that I have a little bias here, but my daughter is just finishing a book on humor in business. Oh, really? Jennifer? Jennifer. It's called Humor Seriously. And it's going to be an amazing blockbuster, I think. It's going to not be out till the fall, till October. But I'm really looking forward to reading that. I have not actually seen it, but... Please put in a good word for me, will you? I will. She teaches a course on humor at Stanford, and, uh, and this book is going to be amazing. Oh, wow. Well, I will definitely uh, be reaching out to her to see if uh, we might be able to, to get her on the show. And actually, she went to Stanford, right? She did. So, so there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So she's, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty much, a, you know, I've got unlimited Stanford slots here. So yeah, she went to Stanford and she teaches at Stanford. That's great. So, uh, and it's not her first book either. It's her second. Mm-hmm. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to your site, Profit, as well as your uh, site, uh, social media, including your uh, LinkedIn profile, so listeners can connect with you. And thank you for joining us on the show. And I'm also going to do my very best to include the Dollar Shave Club videos and the Life Boy uh, Stories videos that you mentioned. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found right now by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Owning Game-Changing Subcategories, Uncommon Growth in the Digital Age. The author is David Ocker. David, thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, my pleasure. And that closes the book on episode 275 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. And if you'd like to record a question that could be played and answered on a future episode, please go to marketingbookpodcast.com and record it. And please join us next time as we welcome Rashad Tabakawala to talk about his book, Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Jessica Ambrose.